in a splash of excitement caused by a minor excess of excellence in the sermons available to us. I recorded two podcasts this week instead of one. So rather than getting just the one sermon that was planned on uh, a sermon for the week of prayer, you've also got a bonus sermon from the same week of reading, The Earnest of Heaven. So you've got the standard podcast, a sermon for the week of prayer, and then a bonus podcast on The Earnest of Heaven before we move on next week uh, in our proper sequence to a sermon on humility, sermon 365. Apologies for the confusion, uh, and I hope that you don't mind the added extras. Take care. God bless. Once again, a very warm welcome to this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. Each week we read through sermons from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, working our way through the main published editions. And this week we're on sermons 360 to 366. You can follow along with us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's at Reading Spurgeon. Or you can go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts and you can sign up there for a weekly newsletter with information about what to read and where to read it and a PDF of the featured sermon. Now this week our featured sermon is number 358. 358. It's called The Earnest of Heaven and it was delivered on Sunday morning, February the 3rd, 1861, by Spurgeon at Exeter Hall, the Strand. That Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, is his text, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. And he launches straight in. So then, heaven with all its glories is an inheritance. And the proper sense of that then is it's not bought, it's not earned, it's not won, it is given by birth. And the birth here is not our birth into privilege in the human sense, but the heavenly birth. We have been made sons by God's adoption, sons by the Spirit's generation, and so we have become children of God, and heaven is our inheritance. But, says Spurgeon, and that's a positive but, There are piskas even now on the surface of the earth, mountains from the top of which the celestial Canaan can be beheld. There are hallowed hours in which the mists and clouds are swept away and the sun shines in his strength and our eye being freed from its natural dimness beholds something of that land which is very far off and sees a little of the joy and blessedness which is reserved for the people of God hereafter. In other words, we are looking ahead. We are able to see under certain times, uh, certain circumstances, in certain times, something more than usual of the blessings that lie ahead. And that anticipation is connected with the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. For Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of the inheritance. Now, we need to understand this, and Spurgeon will help us to do that. Not only the pledge, for a pledge is given in security, but when the thing pledged is given, then the pledge itself is restored. But the Spirit is an earnest, which is a pledge and something more. An earnest is a part of the thing itself, not only a pledge of the thing for security, but a foretaste of it for present enjoyment. And that's what this earnest is, this foretaste, this true guarantee 
which is itself a part of the thing himself, a part of that which is promised. Perhaps an illustration will help. You you owe someone a hundred pounds, a hundred dollars, a hundred pesos, wherever you are. You owe someone a hundred of your currency. And you say, well, I'll give you my watch as a guarantee, but I still owe you a hundred pounds. And when I start paying it off, I'll get my watch back. Or you can say, here are 10 pounds. And that's the foretaste. That's the earnest. That's the down payment. It's the same in kind. And when I come to pay off the rest, there's only another £90 to go until you've got the whole of the sum owing. And it's that down payment, that foretaste, that earnest language that is being used here. Heaven is when we come to know the fullness of that spiritual work in our whole humanity. But the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people of God is already a real foretaste. It's the down payment. It's the present experience of that which is soon fully to be experienced. And Spurgeon wants us to understand that even now by the Holy Spirit, we experience, we joy, we feel in ways that are truly heavenly. The Holy Spirit brings heaven down to God's people and makes us already able to guess in some measure what heaven must be, what the Holy Spirit already does in us and to us and for us is genuinely heavenly. And we need to know that and we need to understand that and Spurgeon bubbles over as he talks about those things. But there's another side of those things that it's possible for men on earth to have both a pledge and an earnest of eternal pains reserved for the impenitent. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there's a, a sense then of what looms ahead for those who do not know God. So then, some of the works of the Spirit which are peculiarly, which are in a distinct sense, this earnest or foretaste to the child of God of the blessings of heaven. First, he says, heaven is a state of rest. It may be because I am constitutionally idle, he says, that I look upon heaven in the aspect of rest with greater delight than under any other view of it, with but one exception. Now, you might think Spurgeon's exaggerating. I don't think he is. I think he's an active man because he's been saved by grace. I think he's quite probably quite accurate to say he's constitutionally idle. And for those who are so inclined, the idea of a rest in heaven when the work here is done is a great blessing to us. And so he says there are times when you've known this rest in your present experience, not the rest of sleep, not the rest of laziness, not the rest of lethargy, but a, a sense of real peace, a sense of knowing that uh, there was, well, let's use Spurgeon's language. You had not a wish in all the world ungratified. You knew yourself to be pardoned. You felt yourself an heir of heaven. Christ was precious to you. You knew that you walked in the light of your father's countenance. You'd cast all your worldly care on him, for he cared for you. You, you were simply at rest in your father's arms. 
You were passive in God's hands. You were confident that he was for you and would do in you and for you all that was ever needful in your behalf. It was a sweet day. Now, says Spurgeon, that wasn't just a pledge. It was part of the rest. It was a foretaste. It was a real thing. You knew a sense of what will one day be entirely and consistently and without reserve your experience. Now he flips it. There's a passage in the book of Revelation which might puzzle you because it said concerning the angels that they rest not day or night. And if we're to be like the angels of God in heaven, then we must not rest. Now, what are we talking about? If we've just said that rest is part of the blessing, then what is this labor? Well, it's service. There's rest as far as ease and freedom from care are concerned. We never rest in the sense of indolence or inactivity, but we do not rest in the sense that there will be service. We are unwearied in serving. And, says Spurgeon, we know something of that by the operations of the Holy Spirit in the here and now. We've had the pledge and the earnest of this kind of heaven. We have preached once and again and again and again and again in one day. And someone said, you're going to destroy yourself. But we felt rather strengthened and energized than worn down. He talks about the pastor's work in times of revival. And he says, it's not fatiguing on one level. It's joyful. You're lifted up when you've served so well. And perhaps as a Christian, you yourself have known what it is to be in that situation, whether as a, a preacher or some other servant of God. And you've been striving and laboring. You've been uh, testifying or serving, engaging on behalf of God and of his people. And what might have exhausted you has energized you. And these feelings are foretastes. They're reminders of the fact that the Spirit of God is enlivening us. And one, one day we shall not have any such weariness. Now there are times and seasons when we have a sense of that uh, lifting up in our spirits and our bodies that Christ is by his Spirit enabling us to serve without weariness. There's a third thing. Heaven is a place of communion with all the people of God. God has so constituted the human heart, says our preacher, that it loves society and especially the renewed heart is so made that it cannot help communing with all the people of God. It's a, a, an invariable indication of a true Christian that they love other Christians. If a man is a child of God, then I do not care what I may think about him, says Spurgeon. If I be a child of God, I do commune with him, and I must, for we are all parts of the same body, all knit to Christ, and it is not possible that one part of Christ's body should ever be in any state but that of communion with all the rest of the body. In heaven we do not sing solos, but in chorus shall we praise our King, and so it is upon earth. We do not walk in isolation from one another, we walk in company with each other. And says Spurgeon, we have the earnest of that heavenly joy now, for how often has it been our privilege to hold the highest and sweetest fellowship with our fellow Christians? That real oneness of mind 
and heart. Spurgeon has a beautiful description of it. When love has gone from heart to heart, and we have all felt knit together as one man, when party names were all forgotten, when jealousies and bickerings were driven out of doors, and we felt that we were one family and did all bear the same one name, having one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, then it was that we had the earnest, the foretaste, the first drinking of that well of Bethlehem, which is on the other side, the pearly gate of the celestial city. Perhaps you've been in a, a prayer meeting or a conference or a gathering of churches in, uh, for a particular meeting. And as Christ has been preached or praise has been sung, other distinctions have in measure collapsed in upon themselves. And there's a sense that you are among God's people. And that is what has mattered most of all. That, says Spurgeon, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's one day to be fulfilled and completed in glory, but you can taste it really and truly here. Now he's having to move on. This is, this is the bubbling up. I have to be brief on each of these points, for there are so many to mention. Uh, I wonder if we've actually got somewhere a, uh, a copy of the, the notes that Spurgeon used for this, maybe hidden away in some library somewhere. It'd be interesting to see all of the things that perhaps he had in mind and whether or not he needed to drop anything as he preached because of the, the things that were being uh, bubbling up as he, as he was declaring these matters. So his, his fourth point then, that part of the bliss in heaven will consist in joy over sinners saved. The angels look down from the battlements of the city which has foundations, and when they see prodigals return, they sing. Jesus calls together his friends and his neighbours and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost. Angels begin the theme, the sacred fire runs through the host, and all the saints above take up the strain. Heaven is full of joy over sinners saved. What then should rejoice the heart of God's people upon earth. It is also when there is joy in salvation. We have felt more joy over the conversion of others, said Spurgeon, we have sometimes thought, than even over our own. Perhaps that's true of, of parents or, or friends or children when they've been pleading with God for family members, a brother or a sister or a dear friend or you're just struck with the wonder and the marvel of salvation as a sinner bows the knee to Jesus Christ. I think one of the, the happiest days of my life uh, was the first time I, I knew that someone had been saved under the ministry which God had given to me. There was uh, just a, an absolute delight. Now we know how Satan loves to take that joy away from us, but there is joy over sinners saved. And that's part of the Spirit's work in us. It's one of the things that will make heaven to be heaven when all God's redeemed are gathered in and it gladdens the heart here upon earth. But something then more personal, we might call it illumination. Did you ever get a knotty passage in scripture, asked Spurgeon, which repeated itself in your mind so many times that you could not get rid of it? You borrowed some commentaries, you opened them, and you found that you might inquire within, but get no information whatever upon the particular subject you wished most to be informed about. Commentaries, he says, generally are books which are written to explain those parts of Scripture which everybody understands, and to make those that are dark more mysterious than they were before. 
And anybody who has ever tried to prepare a sermon or a talk with a commentary would say, yep, I know exactly what he means. But what about when the Holy Spirit gives you understanding? When you come to heaven, you will know there will be a, a profound understanding and discernment. You'll, you'll have a, a perfect capacity to learn and you'll be ever learning. But even now, the Spirit of God is pleased to increase our knowledge and open the eyes of our understanding. We wrestle in prayer, we plead with God, and the Scripture falls open before us in terms of its truth, in terms of its experience, in terms of its instruction. And that is the work of the Spirit in our hearts, even now, leading us allward, onward into all knowledge. A sixth thing. Two or three thoughts into one for brevity's sake. Whenever, Christian, you've achieved a victory over your lusts, whenever after hard struggling you've laid a temptation dead at your feet, you've had in that day and hour a foretaste of the joy that awaits you when the Lord shall shortly tread Satan under your feet. That victory in the first skirmish is the pledge and the earnest of the triumph in the last decisive battle, something that Christians long for, to be truly holy, grieving over the temptations that assault us and the way in which we fall to them, stumbling so often in our walk heavenwards. But, says Spurgeon, you know that when you come at last into the presence of God, you shall be without sin. There will be no more striving against sin, for there shall be no more temptation, and in you no more weakness. And you know now something of that reality, because every triumph over sin, every overcoming of temptation, every resistance of the whisper of the devil is an indication of the Holy Spirit already at work in your soul. If you have overcome one foe, you shall overthrow them all. We know that these things still lie ahead, but we know too that they are already begun. And so there are these uh, liftings up in triumph over sin even in our present experience. Something else, a foretaste of heaven which the Spirit gives, which it would be wrong for us to omit. And now, he says, I shall seem, I dare say, to those who do not understand spiritual mysteries, to be as one that dreams. There are moments when the child of God has real fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This now is not the communion that the saints enjoy with one another, but the communion that all the saints enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ. We know what fellowship is between man and man. There is as real a fellowship between the Christian and Christ. Our eyes can look on him. By faith we can grasp him. There is a drawing near of God in Christ to his people. There are moments with the believer when, whether in the body or out of the body, he cannot tell. God knows, but this he knows, that Christ's left hand is under his head and his right hand does embrace him. Christ has shown to him his hands and his side. It may not be long. It may only be moments. There may be those brief points at which it seems like the clouds which so often uh, restrict our vision, are briefly blown to one side, but we know and see something of 
Christ Jesus. And Spurgeon, instinctively, I think, for him, goes to the language of the Song of Solomon to express that communion between God and his people. One hour with Christ is worth an eternity of all earth's joys. I think we could say one moment with Christ, one glimpse of the King in his glory by faith. That overcomes a thousand griefs, it steals us for a thousand battles, it lifts us in a thousand duties. May I but see him, says Spurgeon, may I but see his face, but behold his beauties. Come winds, blow ye away all earthly joys I have, this joy shall well content my soul. And then something again, on the dying beds, Christian men get foretastes of heaven which they never had in health. The nearer to death, the nearer to heaven with the believer. The more sick, the nearer he is to health. I remember when a Christian brother, says Spurgeon, who'd often preached with me the gospel, was sure sick and dying. He was suddenly smitten with blindness, which was a first monition of the approach of death. And he said to me, and when ye see my eye strings break, how sweet my moments roll, a mortal paleness on my cheek. But glory in my soul. He said it with such emphasis, says Spurgeon, as a man who but two or three minutes after stood before his God, that I can never read those lines without feeling how well the poet must have foreseen a death like his. When we come close to glory, when the, the house is being pulled down, says Spurgeon, the light shines through the chinks. This, then, is another earnest of the glory to come. And the closer we are, at least in the spirit, to enjoying those mercies, the more we may feel them. Spurgeon, I don't think, is saying this is always and invariably the case to the same degree, but it is to be expected that as we come closer to the realm in which the Spirit will entirely operate upon us without any restriction or limitation, that we should know something even more then of his operations in our souls. But, says Spurgeon, there's another side to this. The believer gets foretastes of glory. The unbeliever can anticipate foretastes of woe. Immortality awaits us all, says Spurgeon. We die, but we die not. We live forever, and if we do not fear God, that immortality is the most frightful curse that ever fell on a creature. To linger in eternal death, yet death forever fly. So what are the foretastes then that the ungodly have of the coming woe and shame? Well, they have an uneasiness of spirit, says Spurgeon. They're never contented. They're always wanting something. They always feel a lack. Whenever they have what they wanted, they want something more. There's a consistent dissatisfaction. They are never truly happy. They cling to the world's amusements and they find them ultimately empty. And, says Spurgeon, when a man gets into that uneasy state, when nothing really pleases, nothing really satisfies, no novelty scratches the itch, he may make a guess of what hell will be. 
that uneasiness intensified, magnified to the extreme, to wander through dry places seeking rest and finding none, always thirsting, never a drop of water to cool that thirst, hungering but feeding upon wind and hungering still, longing, yearning, groaning, sighing, conscious of misery, sensible of emptiness, feeling poverty, but never getting aught, anything, whereby that poverty may be made rich, or that hunger may be stayed. Ah, ye uneasy ones, may your uneasiness bring you to Christ. You see how having spoken of the, the present fullnesses that the believer enjoys, it's the emptinesses that he presses home upon the ungodly. And he says, you know what that's like now. It's only a, a foretaste. It's only a glimpse into what comes. So come to your Christ now in your emptiness who will make you full. And there's another foretaste of hell. It's uneasiness, not about life, but about death. The person who trembles during a thunderstorm, a man who, uh, if he's got the slightest sickness, becomes persuaded he will die. Spurgeon seems to suggest that, at least in some forms, hypochondria is a is a kind of reminder to us that we, we don't know what lies ahead or we're afraid of what lies ahead and we have to retain our health perhaps in the present time when everybody is just absolutely in a panic about uh, their health the pandemic is sweeping the globe the there's a desperate need to get well and to stay well why because the unbeliever has nothing to look forward to i'm not suggesting that believers want to die in that sense but we know that to die is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And so says Spurgeon. Some people are just terrified of death. Some people are, are, are horrified, not when their blood is boiling and they're all excited, but if they stop and think about the grave, there is terror. And when a man has long resisted the invitations of the gospel, long gone from bad to worse, from sin to sin, a horror, an unspeakable horror, will seize hold upon him at times, especially if he is a man given to intoxication. There's a kind of remorseful madness that makes life intolerable. When, when men sink down, if they're, they're drunkards or, or drug addicts, or perhaps even today pornographers, uh, sucked into these kinds of sins as a horror and a terror when they sort of just come up for a bit of air and then there's a dull despair which is, says Spurgeon, the sure advance guard of damnation itself. So what hope is there? Christ and Christ only. And Christ calls many at the eleventh hour. Spurgeon says, preach to them the thief on the cross. No, no, they put far from them all hope. They choose their own delusions and perish. Now such men give the gravest picture of what hell must be in these forebodings of the wrath to come. You're preaching to them of a Christ who can yet save them, and some will still turn away. They are terrified. I cannot die, said one man, for I must be damned if I die. I feel I must. What do you do? You preach Christ Jesus. May God deliver you from ever knowing this vilest premonition of destruction, says Spurgeon. And some of the, the older preachers to whom I have spoken, they have known this kind of horror and terror with people on their deathbeds. But trust Christ and you are saved, says our preacher. Be you whom you may. 
Come to the foot of the cross and cast yourself where his blood is dropping and you are saved. Now we can say this to anyone. Give your heart to him. Believe in him. Repose your confidence in him. And Spurgeon cries as he so often does. May the spirit of God enable you to do this. Here then is powerful pleading. There is joy and peace in believing for all who have this simple faith in Jesus Christ. And those who believe, even if they have long had these premonitions and terrors and horrors of the coming damnation, they shall know in Christ the work of the Holy Spirit of promise and the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Friends, these are beauties and glories for Christians. These are real horrors for the unconverted. May God teach us all, as we need, to know them more and more, that we who know the Spirit's work in us as the earnest of our inheritance may both enjoy it and declare it to those who are still in darkness and deep distress. And may God, in his mercy, bring us into these things. Well, God willing, next time we're going to come on to uh, the first sermon in the tabernacle. It's sermon 369, and it's the, the first sermon that Spurgeon preached in the newly erected Metropolitan Tabernacle, and it gives the, the title to the books that we're now in, these Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Series. May God help us as we continue reading these things to know the glory of Christ, to understand and experience the blessings of the Holy Spirit and to be more and more committed to the glory of God in his Son as we see it shining, illuminated by the precious beams of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.